Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you have uh, your Bibles, and please do if you've got them in the uh, uh, back of the seats, uh, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to start our reading at verse 27, picking up from where um, Jonathan uh, led us last week, page 1113 in the uh, uh, Pew Bibles, if you've got them. <clears throat> Philippians 1 and verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for its encouragement. Thank you for its instruction. Thank you for the times when it uh, shows us that we need to do things differently. Lord, I pray this morning that you would open up your word to us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would uh, shine a light on, on these verses. Help us to understand. Lord, speak to our hearts. Soften them where they need softening. Speak to our minds. Open them where they need opening. Help us to see you, almighty God. Amen. Just a word of warning. Lydia is going to be learning to drive in a couple of weeks' time. Now, she's already, in her own mind, pretty much passed her test. She's been doing the theory, and uh, I never had to do a theory test when uh, um, I was learning to drive, a new thing. 
But um, the theory test is not just about learning the rules of the road, learning the theory of it, um, but it's also a test to make sure you've got the right attitude to driving. And Lydia's been showing me some of the test questions you can do online to see um, whether you are, are likely to pass. And they have questions like this. You're approaching a set of traffic lights and the lights turn amber. What do you do? Do you, A, put your foot hard on the floor and get through? Do you, B, look carefully around for cameras and policemen? And if all is clear, then proceed as A. Or do you, C, carefully and gently bring the car to a halt and wait for the signal to turn green? Now, Lydia's not daft. She said, I know how to beat this test. It's all about just showing that you've got the right attitude. It's picking the question that you know they want, picking the option you know they want you to answer and answering that. (coughs) We see in this passage in Philippians that Paul tells us that we need to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. And as we go through, I'd like us to think, do we have a right attitude towards God and Jesus and his word? Or do we know in theory what we ought to say, but actually do like Nick does and put his foot to the floor (laughs) and ignore the rules anyway? Now, I had a a quick look on the internet about um, attitudes, and it seems that there are a number of signs about your behaviours that show whether or not you have an attitude problem. And I want you to listen carefully to them, (laughs) because maybe some of them will resonate. So, these are some of the signs. You think that nothing ever goes your way. You always believe you're right. When good things happen to other people, you feel a bit bitter. You refuse to give way on any issue, and you get extremely angry when something's amiss. Now, that's not an exhaustive list, but I wonder, is there something common in that list that jumps out at you? Yeah, the focus is all on us, isn't it? It's when we look for things that we want that we think we should have, that we deserve. And that drives our motivations. And we'll see from the passage in Philippians, and I hope you picked this up as we read it, that the secret to having a right attitude is not to focus on ourselves, but it's actually to approach things with total humility and a servant heart. You know, I think... The world that we live in has things totally on its head at the moment. It's all about what we can get, isn't it? There's a sense of outrage if we feel um, that something's happened to us that shouldn't have happened to us. You know, we can say that uh, people have freedom of speech, but if they don't say the things that we believe in, then we get outraged. I think it was Jonathan that was uh, mentioning last week that sometimes our prayers can be selfish like that. It's easy to focus on what we want rather than on what God wants. 
Is there something wrong with our attitude? Now for Paul, as he wrote this letter, if anybody had an excuse to be aggrieved, it was probably him, and justifiably so. He was a Roman citizen. He had rights. And yet here he is in a Roman prison without having had a fair trial and not in prison for any crime that he committed solely for preaching the word of God. If anybody had a right to be justifiably um, uh, kind of agreed at his uh, treatment, it was him. And yet what was Paul's attitude? It was one of total humility, one of giving thanks in all circumstances, one of kind of almost welcoming the fact that he had the opportunity to preach to uh, Christ to the Roman guards. Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Verse 27. And then verse 3, do nothing out of vain conceit. Now I would suggest that there's three key things that set our perspectives and determine to a very large extent the attitudes that we have. The attitudes we have to life, the attitudes we have to God. And they are, what is your view of God? What's your view of Jesus? And in answering those, what's then your view of yourself? And I'd like us to have a look at those three different areas. So first of all, um, what is your view of God? Verses 5 and 6 in um, chapter 2 of Philippians there says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. Well, how do you describe God? How do you understand what that verse means when it says that Jesus is in very nature God? Of course, we know it means that Jesus is God, but what does that mean? How do you describe God? The trouble is, he's indescribable, isn't he? He's almighty. He's all-knowing, but he's unknowable. His words, his very words, spoke the whole of creation out of nothing. The scriptures say that no man can look upon God and live. He's just so awesome. He's so holy. His wisest thoughts, oh sorry, our wisest thoughts are just foolishness compared to God's thoughts. His ways are so much higher. He's indescribable. So can we understand anything from what he's put into place, his creation. You see, even in that, we cannot fathom the depths of who God is. We look deeper and deeper into the structure of of matter. Beyond the atoms, the electrons, the strings, the deeper and deeper we go, we still can't find an end to it. Just when we think we got to the end, there's another bit that comes. More and more and more. We can never reach the limits of the um, kind of infinite detail that God has put together. And yet we wonder if he cares for us and our problems that we face. So he's the God of the minute. 
But then when we look out, he's the God of the enormous. For all the telescopes and uh, space probes we send out, we can't see an end to it all. We look further and further, and the more we see, the more we find there is to see. And actually, we've worked out that probably we only know about 4% of what there is to know. A fraction of it. For all our explorations that we've done in space missions and so on, we've barely scratched the surface of our own solar system, let alone our galaxy, let alone the universe that we live in. Our God is a great big God, as we sang before. I wonder what's your view of God? Because if we try and box him in, if we try and contain him, then we're doing him a huge disservice. And the trouble is that despite all this greatness, this majesty, this wonder, this power, we still have the audacity sometimes, don't we, to question his wisdom, to challenge his word, to go against his authority, to trust not in him, but in our own perspectives and knowledge and standards. I wonder, what's your view of God? Do you have the right attitude when it comes to understanding who he is? And then what's your view of Jesus? Verse 5 and 6, again, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, Jesus is God. He is all the things that I mentioned before when we look at the nature and character of God. But the difference is that even though Jesus was God and had all that, he didn't cling on to it. As we see there, he didn't grasp on to that nature, but he let it go. He let go of all that omnipotence, that all-powerfulness, that omniscience, all-knowing, omnipresent, being everywhere nature, so that he could take on the very nature of man. The creator, as it were, being wrapped in the form of the created. But he didn't come to earth as a powerful earthly king. That would have been humbling enough. But he came as a lowly servant. The king of the universe, the king of glory, voluntarily became a pauper for us. He had to borrow a place to be born. He had to borrow a bed to sleep in. He had to borrow a room to share the Last Supper with his disciples. He had to borrow a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. And he had to borrow a tomb to be buried in. He gave up the highest and became the lowest for us. But he was still God. Even though he had this appearance of a man, he was God in total submission to the authority of God the Father. The way he lived his life demonstrated his total submission and his attitude of servanthood towards God. You know, 
for the first 30 years or so of Jesus' life, there seems to be nothing remarkable for the gospel writers to write about him. He grew up in uh, submission to his parents. He was diligent in his studies, no doubt. He worked diligently as a carpenter. For the first 30 years of his life, nothing particularly noteworthy except his servant-heartedness and his humility. The very king of heaven just working in that uh, humble job. But then it all changed, didn't it? Continuing his obedience to God the Father, we see that he said, I need to be baptized. Even though John the Baptist said, it should be the other way around, you should be baptizing me, in total humility, Jesus said, no, this is what my Father commands, I'm going to do it. And as a result of that, Jesus, who'd made himself empty, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did God say? What did that voice say coming from heaven? This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And I was thinking about this. I'm thinking, God was well pleased with what Jesus had done, but he'd actually not done a lot up till that point. All he'd done was live a life in submission to God and humility. God wasn't saying, I'm pleased with uh, all the miracles you haven't yet done. (laughs) He was saying, I'm pleased because you've been in submission to me. And that's what God wants of us. He wants that submission, that humility. And the difference was that when Jesus emptied himself and allowed God to fill him with the Holy Spirit, then everything changed. From the first 30 years of being not particularly noteworthy as far as the gospel writers were concerned, all of a sudden, miracle upon miracle, healing, teaching, powerful teaching, people being raised from the dead, people being released from bondage of uh, um, being possessed, people having their sins forgiven. Jesus' humility allowed God to work through him. So I wonder what your view of Jesus is. Is it simply that he came to earth as a, as a man? And he was a good teacher? And he did good things? Or is your view of somebody who in complete obedience and submission to God the Father, did exactly what God was asking him to do. Before we look at what's your view of yourself, I want to uh, ask you if you know how to catch a monkey. Well, it's quite easy. You have a little container with a hole just big enough for the monkey to get his hand into. And in that container, be it a coconut shell or whatever, you put something that the monkey wants. And when the monkey puts his hand into this container and grasps what it is inside, 
The monkey will not let go of that thing. And pull and pull and pull as he might, he can't get his hand out of the hole in the container. The only way that he can get his hand out is by letting go of that thing that's in the container. And monkeys are pretty dumb because they don't like letting go of things. And so you lay one of these traps and you can be pretty much guaranteed to find a monkey hanging on and will not let go. I wonder, is that sometimes our attitude to the things that God gives us? What's your view of yourself? What are your priorities in life? Are there things that you're holding on to? When you look at what's ahead, the plan for your life, what what do you set as your priorities? What do you set as your goals and your ambitions? I would suggest that uh, most people have ambitions to be successful. Maybe to uh, um, you know have a family if God so blesses you that way. Maybe to have sufficient money to uh, uh, be comfortable. And you know, in themselves, there's nothing wrong with that. So long as they don't take the place of God. You see, Jesus had everything. He was God. Everything was at his disposal and at his command. And yet Jesus still bowed down into submission to God the Father. What's your view of yourself? Do you recognize Jesus as Lord of your life? It's kind of interesting, isn't it, when you look back at what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they had everything. Everything they could possibly want. But what happened? Satan tempted them. And what were the words that Satan used? He said in Genesis 3, 5, God knows that when you eat it, you will be like God. In taking that fruit, they were grasping for something that they couldn't attain. And what about Isaiah 14, 14? Uh, what happened to Satan? He said, I will make myself like the Most High. Total contrast to Jesus. We tend to grasp for things that we can't hold on to, we can't keep. Jesus let go of everything that he had in total humility. Many would say that we should judge our success by uh, the material things that we have. Jesus' success was determined by what he gave up. So, do we have an attitude problem? Do we have that same attitude that Jesus had? In all his teachings, he said things like, the first shall be last. He said that, blessed are the meek, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's totally topsy-turvy 
But when we read on in uh, that last part of that Philippians chapter, we see a very significant word. Verse 9. Therefore, because Jesus humbled himself, gave up everything, even and, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, because of that, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. God gave him back everything. And I just love these, uh, this wor- these words from uh, uh, verse 9 onwards. It's full of uh, these um, superlatives, these biggest words. Right? Just have a look. Exalted him to the highest place. There is no place higher. Gave him the name that's above every name. Every name, not most names, every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, and on earth, and under the earth. There's no, um, nobody left excluded from that. In the heavens. That includes the angels, the demons, all created beings, things we can't see. On the earth, it includes everything, everybody, all of you, under the earth, all those that have died, gone before us. There's nobody excluded. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. They may not declare that Jesus is their Lord, but they have no excuse. Everybody, every born-again believer, every member of every religion that's ever been dreamt up, they will all have to bow the knee at Jesus because he's given the name which is above every name. Do we bow the knee to that name and confess that Jesus is Lord of everything? Is he Lord of your marriages? Is he Lord of your jobs? Is he Lord of your money? Is he Lord of your friends? Is he Lord of the things you spend your free time on? Jesus gave up all that he had in humility and obedience to God. What's our attitude in return? I'd just like us to watch a very short uh, um, video clip that sums it up beautifully. Well, I was in college. It didn't really matter who I talked to about Jesus. Almost everyone seemed pretty open or pretty okay with, you know, chatting about his grace, his forgiveness, and his love. But I remember almost everyone, like clockwork, would start to get upset and kind of have this righteous anger whenever I would bring up those passages where Jesus asks for everything. He says, you need to give up your life. You need to die to self. You need to love me more than your mom and your dad. And there was almost kind of this how dare he attitude that would boil up when I would chat with people about that. And I remember perfectly being understand, I would understand it and say that totally makes sense. But the more I thought about it, I started to realize how come he's the only one we get mad at that asks that, right? We're perfectly fine with everything else in our life asking for us, asking everything from us and asking us to sacrifice for. It's like, how many marriages have we seen 
where the father is totally willing to give up everything. The relationship with the kids, the relationship with the wife, maybe his friends at church, because he wants to have an adulterous relationship. Or how many 16-year-old teenage girls do we know who are willing to sacrifice their bodies, their minds, their emotions, their friends for a boyfriend? How many people do we know that are willing to sacrifice everything on the altar of their job? And so the truth that I started to realize is it's not that we should get mad at Jesus for asking asking everything from us. It's actually that everything does that. There's one thing in every single one of our lives that demands everything from us. It says, I want all of you. And what's unique is that it's not that Jesus is unique in asking everything for us, but Jesus is unique in that he actually gives up everything for us first. Jesus is the only one out of lust, anger, adultery, relationships, reputation, power, sex. He's the only one out of all those things that actually says, I'm going to give you everything I have to compel you to give everything up for me. See, the truth is, All those other things slap a spiked leash on us and drag us around the corridors of life, forcing us as a slave to do what they say. And they always overpromise and underdeliver. But Jesus says, I'm only demanding your life because I gave you my life. I'm only demanding your obedience because I served you first. And when you understand that, when you see that the cross is the ultimate compelling love pulling you in, you realize that he's better than every single thing you've been pursuing in this life. Hmm. So, something's going to be Lord of your life. (laughs) Something's going to demand uh, everything of you. I wonder what your reaction is. Paul had got to that point where he had in total submission said, do you know, it's all for you, God. Again, we saw last week that it was beautifully summed up in in Paul's saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whether I live, that's great. I can preach Christ. But if I die, that's great also. I'll go to be with Christ. In total submission, he'd come to that point where he said, God, it's all about you. It's not about me. It was like in that monkey trap, he'd been able to let go of the things that actually he couldn't hang on to and let God work through him. Are we able to do that? And Paul is exhorting the uh, Philippians here to say, you've got to be imitators of Christ. You've got to follow the example because... You are Christ's ambassadors. How will people know about Christ if they don't see it from you, if they don't see it in the way you behave? If you live your lives, uh, you know, just in the same way as the world does, with the same goals and aspirations and, uh, and drivers, then you're no different from them. You've got to empty yourself just as Jesus did so that you can be filled just as Jesus was when he was baptized and released then to do God's work. And you know, the exciting thing is that Jesus promised his disciples when they were discussing all these miracles, he said, you're going to do even greater things than these because God is going to work through you. You see, when we empty ourselves of the stuff that kind of hinders and we allow God to work through us, 
Wow. How potent and incredible that is. That's how God wants us to be. It's tough though, isn't it? Isn't it tough living in a world that has values completely alien to uh, what God would uh, uh, have us do? Isn't it tough living in a world where being meek and being a servant and being humble is seen as being something of a doormat to be trodden on? And I would suggest that it's not about kind of reducing yourself to somebody that gets sand kicked in their face all the time and uh, is never respected. Jesus certainly wasn't like that. He stood up for the truth. Sometimes he got righteously angry. But his focus was always on the Father's work, not on his own work. And something that I find incredibly helpful in this tough world where you're given kind of challenging things and you think, well, what on earth should I do in this situation? I know that some of you have these uh, um, kind of bands that you wear the WWJD, that stands for what would Jesus do? What would he do in this situation? And I think this passage from Philippians is really all about us trying to understand what would Jesus do? What's the example he gave in humbling himself, being that servant, giving himself up for us? And if he's prepared to do that, what should we do in return? Because Paul clearly says here, our attitude should be the same as that of Jesus. Did Jesus have an attitude problem? Absolutely not. He had it completely right, and therefore God exalted him to the highest place. Do we want to know what the secret of success is? It's not power, it's not wealth, it's not position, it's not authority. It's humility and a servant heart. Because then, and only then, can God really work through us. Amen.